Hi, and welcome to the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell podcast. Hi guys, since it's Valentine's Day, we're going to get romantic. Insert sexy music here. Wait, was that Carlos Whisper? I always get Carlos Whisper mixed up with... That's it! That's the one I... Anyway, as you may have noticed, I am... Not accompanied by my usual Sam. I have a different co-host, who is my friend Christine here. Hi! Hello! Who is basically my friend from school. Who also happens to have an art history degree. So I thought she would be the perfect person to come on and help me talk about romanticism. Not the romanticism of weird teddy bears and love hearts, but... The romanticism of, well, we will explain to you. Well, I'm not exactly the most perfect person to talk about this, seeing as my special area of interest happens to be Soviet art between the years 1943 and 1955, if you want to get super specific. But I do have to say romanticism is really interesting and very multifaceted, and it's definitely in there, like top five art movements for me definitely yeah i mean like i'm i'm at art school i should know about art but i really i really don't i like i feel like jonathan chase and mission Arl was the thing that got me into looking at romanticism like after uh-huh. after i read the book i was i went and started reading byron because i was like who is this strange man that he meets in venice and stuff um and that kind of got me into looking at stuff and i obviously had seen quite a lot of romantic art but I didn't really know kind of didn't really know why it was romantic or what kind of work what kind of ideals it represented and all this stuff so um yeah that's all the stuff we're gonna tell you okay so what we're gonna do here um right we're gonna run through key points of romanticism and tell you about it tell you about some artists um we'll put all like all the names and paintings we mentioned will be in the description of the podcast down below i'm pointing but this is not a vlog but whatever um and then afterwards we'll take all the stuff that you've learned from us and we'll apply it to the mini series mainly to the mini series because we'll be talking we'll be talking about art and visuals and like stuff you can see um yeah and we're avoiding literature because yeah romantic and gothic literature it's a whole nother kettle of fish i'm just gonna plug my art history blog um, I have a little blog at Blogspot going. I write little articles and essays and things on art history. It's uk, And I will definitely in the near future be uploading like a companion article slash blog post to this podcast. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's 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 <laughs> hit the road, Jack. Let's hit the road. Don't you no. come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Okay, so Christine, what yes, is uh, romanticism? Well, I am glad you asked, Sarah. 
I would like to start with a quote from Charles Baudelaire, who I think sums it up very nicely. Um, if you don't know, Charles Baudelaire is my homeboy. He was a French art critic and writer in, in the 19th century. And in 1846, he wrote, Romanticism is precisely situated in choice of subject, nor in exact truth, but in a way of feeling. And I feel that totally embodies <laughs> a massive key concept of romanticism, which we will explain further. But to cover the basics, um, romanticism is a term in use by the early 19th century to describe the movement in art and literature, distinguished by a new interest in human psychology, expression of personal feeling, and interest in the natural world. So it mainly gained momentum as an artistic movement in France and Britain in the early 1800s. If you want to get super specific, this complex shift in attitudes away from the dominant classical tradition was at its height from about 1780 to 1830, although it can be argued that this course in Romanticism and whatnot was present before 1780, and artists continued to paint in the style well into the Victorian era. For example, you can see the continued influence of Romanticism in artists like the Pre-Raphaelites, like John Everett Millay and Waterhouse, especially. Yeah. So the overall characteristic was a new emotionalism in contrast to the prevailing ideas of classical restraint, which could be um, characterized by neoclassicism like Jacques-Louis David and his neoclassical style of painting, which was very um, rigid and clean. And is, is he the guy that did that painting of the, like, the three gladiators? And they're like, yeah. like in a, there's like a very <clears throat> diagonal, triangular, forward like figures at the front and then like a very rigid perspective going into the back. Is that that painting? Yes, it's called the Otho Horatii. Horatii. Horashi. Oh, no. Hor- you know what? I don't know either. Um, I know how to spell it, though. I suck at pronunciation. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> I can't pronounce words. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll have fun with French later. Oh, God, don't even. Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah. Um, so in British art, romanticism was embraced in new responses to nature in the art of, for example, John Constable and J.M.W. Turner. And visionary artist William Blake examined man's place in the cosmos and his relationship to God, as well as looking at human history. And this all developed as a response to the disillusionment with the Enlightenment values of the 18th century. So I feel we just have to step away from romanticism for a minute and explain Enlightenment to just, yeah, to give more context and so that listeners can learn a bit uh, from where romanticism kind of evolved from. So enlightenment was really big during the 18th century, like in the Britain. The dominant thing, and France. the mainstream. Yeah, yeah sort of. Um, wow. It also, like romanticism, which developed um, like away from enlightenment in a way, enlightenment thinking developed in response to Rococo, and the overindulgence of the upper classes. And so the basic enlightenment values are reason, good judgment, the lack of luxury, 
new intellectualism, and it promoted the rise of science and systems in a means of combating top-down power structures and superstitions and beliefs of the earlier times, for example, how to raise children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really like looking at like pre-enlightenment science. I just did air quotes. It's yeah, it's hilarious. It's like yeah, I think or or even like I said, the example of how to raise children. This this doesn't really have to do anything with with romanticism, but it's really interesting, and I do encourage people to look it up. Like the idea of childhood hadn't fully developed until a little bit before the middle of 18th century. For example, if you look at um, paintings of children in the 17th century and early 18th century, they look like mini adults. Yeah. <laughs> and then after a couple of decades, you get the idea of childhood and the development of the child's mind and education of the child coming, coming about. And you can see that in portrayals of children, they actually they look like children. Yeah, and like and that not seems, like many adults. That seems so weird to us now, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Back then, we are post Enlightenment people. Yeah, thank anyway, you, Enlightenment. Back to <laughs> Romanticism. It was yes, <laughs> back to the OG. <laughs> the OG. So, uh, like a rebellion against the Enlightenment. Yes. Well, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of rebellious, you could say that romantic the romantics were kind of like the original emos <laughs> it was very much a <laughs> counterculture at the, the time sort of yeah i mean there was a an element of gothic revival in the art um romanticism mainly i'm just going to lay down some main points of what romanticism was all about um it promoted the originality of the artist self-reflection, and individuality. Um, Nature, also, no surprise here, uh, played a big role in romanticism, mainly in painting, I believe. It's uncontrollable power, unpredictability, and potential for cataclysmic consequences were some very um, popular kind of ideas that the romantics like to play around with. Images of shipwrecks and castle ruins uh, were very popular in painting as well. And if there was a landscape painting that had people in it, uh, the people were usually dwarfed by the landscape, again, to enhance this idea of nature's power and unpredictability. Yeah, and this like this all has to do with the notion of the sublime. Yes, it um, definitely recalls the 18th century ideas of the sublime. As um, Diderot... Denny Diderot said, my homeboy, my enlightenment <laughs> thinker, <laughs> he wrote that all that stuns the soul, all that imprints a feeling of terror leads to the sublime. I think that's um, very, um, yeah. Can you, didn't you get a book out on I the did, sublime I did. earlier? I, I have Edmund Burke's, where is it? I put it away somewhere. Oh, here it is. I have here, she shows it to the camera as if it's a vlog once more. Come on, Sarah, get yourself together. Um, so I have here Edmund Burke's A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful. Um, and just to like, because the sublime is a very, it's quite a difficult concept to grasp. Yeah. It, it took me like years and years and several life experiences to kind of get it. 
Um, yeah, I feel like I think people kind of don't understand the sublime. Didn't you say that the sublime people use sublime interchangeably with beauty? Yeah, as well, um, like, and that's not actually not right. It's a completely different thing. Yeah, and like I read, layers. I read quite a funny um, like onion quote from like uh, like Coleridge, and he he talked a lot about the sublime, and like one time him and Coleridge and Wordsworth were hanging out of a waterfall. And um, one of them was just like, so what do you think of this waterfall? And the other was like, oh yeah, it's like, it's beautiful and sublime. And then the quote goes on to say how the other one just kind of looks at him. And then they burst out laughing and that, that's that's just like, oh, if the sublime was even like problematic even in the um, early 19th century and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of gets confused with beautiful, but the sublime, well, in in the philosophical inquiry into the origins of our ideas and the sublime and beautiful, um, <laughs> Burke sort of talks about pain and pleasure and then talks about mm-hmm. the sublime as kind of being both. And, yeah. and like this, just the sublime as being like the strongest emotion of which the mind is capable of feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like sort of what is the most you can feel? Is it pain or is it pleasure? It's the, like the sublime. Um, and I, what really got me to understand what the sublime was was watching the Macintosh building in Glasgow catch fire and be really destroyed. Um, Now, the Macintosh building, it's like this pinnacle of Art Nouveau architecture. It's like a really world-famous building. uh, And it caught fire about two years ago. And I just remember standing, watching in horror and fascination Mm -hmm. at the, like, massive flames it was like it was very cinematic just like huge flames completely gutting this really really precious building mm-hmm. and like i just i stood and i like watched it for several hours because like you couldn't leave something that was that intense mm-hmm. and kind of weirdly beautiful in a way but not beautiful sublime mm-hmm. um yeah and another thing that gets compared to the sublime is the 9-11 like the twin towers that image of them like falling down and that's something that's been written about as a modern version of the sublime yeah but yeah, yeah definitely. this this was um kind of the view of nature as something destructive powerful yeah that could yeah. kill you at any minute but is should be odd for that yeah it's like um i drew parallels uh, of the sublime of the emotion of someone for example looking at a religious painting I feel like there is some sort of a connection where the individual um, for example um, observes an image of Christ suffering and they fill up with like love and admiration but also sorrow and pain and they feel like they also have to suffer because you know Jesus died for our sins etc if that makes any sense. I yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the sort of the all the power power Yeah. Of God as like this wrathful force which will could wipe out humanity or this yeah. benevolent saviour, but it, it could be both, but it's just powerful and massive and huge and awesome and all these other words that get associated with the sublime but don't mm. fully describe it. I think it's like in a modern context, it's if you're in a mountain <laughs> and there's an avalanche coming at you and you're just like, oh, oh no, I'm, I'm about to die. But first, uh, let me snap, 
let me Snapchat this to my friend, <laughs> you know? You better, <laughs> if it ever happens to you. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, are you kidding? If, if there's a murderer in my house right now, I'll... I'm Snapchatting that. You betcha. You betcha I'm going to take a selfie with him. <laughs> He's going to be like, I'm here to stab you. And I'll be like, but first, let me take a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> so, <But> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the sublime definitely, it's all about emotional intensity, which the romantic, romanticists were super into. Um, Those feels. Yeah, they like, they're so emo, like, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from like the obsession of the individuality of the artist, they were also into like the indiv- like the subject of the individual, like, for example, in portraiture. And portraits became vehicles for expressing a range of psychological and emotional states. And I have a quote from an essay here where it's about Theodore Jericho, if you know him. He painted The Raft of the Medusa. Which you may know if you watch the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special, uh, which had a painting in the background of The Raft of the Medusa, like it was a raft, and but instead of full of like people, it was full of Cybermen, and that was in the background. So just, yeah, <laughs> yes, that happened. Um, <laughs> so um, Jericho probed the extremes of mental illness in his portraits of psychiatric patients, as well as the darker side of childhood in his unconventional portrayals of children. In his portrait of Alfred Dudrow, a boy of about five or six. The child appears intensely serious, more adult than childlike, while the dark clouds in the background convey an unsettling, ominous quality. So then, emotional intensity, nature coming in, all this romantic imagery going on. Sublime. The sublime, yes, all that stuff going on. <laughs> um, animals also were used in romantic art. They were mainly used as metaphors for both forces of nature and human behavior. So, for example, images of wild, unbridled animals evoked primal states that stirred the romantic imagination. I um, unfortunately don't have any examples of animals. I will find one, put it in the description. (laughs) So, I think, in conclusion, we can say that romanticism truly rejected the didacticism of neoclassical history painting. What does I'm didacticism even wild. mean? <laughs> what does that even mean? As no, really, what does I didacticism don't, mean? I don't, I don't know. Um, Google it. I refuse, I refuse to use words. I don't know what they mean. Just give me a second. Cut. Okay, so Wikipedia says, Didacticism is a philosophy that emphasizes instructional and informative qualities in literature and other types of art. Cool. Cool beans, right. Cool beans, yeah. So now you know all about romanticism. Well, the core ideas anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm sure in the post, Sarah will probably put up some further reading, yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. if you want, you can read more. Also, side note, um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art website and also the Tate website has great sources on uh, romanticism and also other art movements as well if you're into art history. They just give like a general intro and summary of them and a couple of sources for food for the reading. So if you want to check that out, please do. Mm-hmm. So shall we talk about a couple of 
um, kind of prolific painters. Yeah, who are we talking about? Uh, who are we talking who about? Who are we talking about? Hmm. Well, so I think let's talk about British artists first, and then we'll talk about foreign artists because we're in England. Um, yeah, this is English magic. English magic, yes. So I don't know if anyone's heard of William Blake. Have you heard of William Blake? William Blake is terrifying. Hannibal, um, uh, Hannibal, Red Dragon, yeah, yeah. first film. You prob- yeah, um, you probably know. Um, if you don't know William Blake, but you have seen Hannibal or any of the movies, you know, you've, se- you've seen the paintings or the artwork. Yeah, that, it's the... Or um, just that single one. Yeah, it's the... The, uh, the Great Dragon and the something maiden... Woman clothed in sun. Or clothed with the sun. Anyway, it's a thing that um, the main serial killer gets tattooed on his back and it makes him really a really dark person, really obsessed with becoming the Great Red Dragon. Yikes. Yikes. It's scary Yikes. stuff. It's intense. <laughs> it's sublime. Yeah, so um, William Blake was born in 1757 and died in 1827. And he was a very religious man. And you could say that he lived in a world of his own. He despised the official art of the academies and declined to accept its standards. Some thought he was completely mad. Others dismissed him as a harmless crank, and only a very few of his contemporaries believed in his art and saved him from starvation. Blake had formed a mythology of his own. He had visions. He said he had visions. And he refused to draw from life and relied entirely on his inner eye. Mm. Um, there was, there is a illustration to his poem, Europe, a prophecy. Sarah, I'll show it to you now. It looks like this. Okay. Yeah. We'll put a link for that. Oh, that. Oh yeah. That one. I know that one. Have you seen that one? Yep. Um, it said that Blake had seen this enigmatic figure of an old man bending down to measure the globe with a compass in a vision which hovered over the head at the top of the staircase when he was living in Lambeth. This man needs medical help. <laughs> yeah, but he he made some, like, good... Yeah. Because he didn't draw from life, it's easy to point to faults in his draftsmanship, but to do so would be to miss the point of his art. Yeah. He did not care for accurate representation. And the significance of each figure of his dreams was of such overwhelming importance to him that questions of mere correctness seemed to him irrelevant. He was the first artist after the Renaissance who thus consciously revolted against the accepted standards of tradition, and we can hardly blame his contemporaries who found him shocking. Hmm. Yeah, I never like because William. I never really like looking at William Blake paintings because they scare me. Same, same. Like. I think he's absolutely amazing, and there is something about his work that seems... It's the sublime. Ah. It's the sublime. Ah. See, everything comes full circle around here. In art history, everything is just a massive circle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, more British artists. Uh, Turner, did you say? Or? Yes, Turner was a big... Big, big, big romantic. Yeah, this SEO. is Turner that gives a name to the Turner Prize, which is like the award given to uh, like the best British artist under 50 of whatever year. It, it, it's yearly, yeah, it's annual. So he liked to paint nature. And there was one branch of painting that profited much by the artist's new freedom in his choice of subject matter. And this is landscape painting. So far, landscape painting had been like a minor art, a really minor genre. 
in the Academy. Footnote one. By the Academy is meant the Royal Academy of Art in London, an art institution that was established in 1768 and also included one of the first art schools in the country. So towards the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century, this attitude towards landscape painting changed and people like Turner and John Constable came on the scene. Um, Turner was born in 1775 and died in 1851. He was an immensely successful artist whose pictures often caused a sensation at the Royal Academy. Yeah, he... like, sorry, carry on. Sorry, go ahead. No, like, I was, was going to interrupt to say, like, I would describe a Turner as... Yes, please keep that in. That's, that's how I would describe a Turner. Yes, I like it. Yes, that's exactly. Like, I'm going to mention this painting in a second. Oh, yeah. And I feel that totally just sounds like what you just said. Link in the description. <laughs> um, so, so Turner too had visions of a fantastic world bathed in light and resplendent with beauty. But it was a world not of calm, but of movement, not of simple harmonies, but of dazzling pageantries. He crowded into his pictures every effect which could make them more striking and more dramatic. And had he been a lesser artist than he was, this desire to impress the public might well have had a disastrous result and I was uh, trolling around the internet and actually found some very nice articles about Turner and there was one article in the Guardian by Jonathan Jones uh, where he wrote that Turner said something eternal about the way light penetrates the human imagination he meditated so deeply on the psychology of light a love affair with the sun that any artist fascinated by light is bound to echo him and he also goes to say, if the sun is God, as Turner is supposed to have said, this incandescent painter was the sun's high priest and art is indebted to him. Oh. So I think that was a, quite a nice quote. Yeah. What was the painting you mentioned earlier so that I can put it um, The painting is Streamer in a Snowstorm of 1842. And this is um, later than 1830, which I mentioned, uh, which apparently was the end of uh, Romanticism's height. Rip. So that show goes to show that um, romanticism did, did go on. So this painting, it shows one of Turner's most daring paintings. All he gives us is the impression of the dark hall of the flag flying bravely from the mast, of a battle with the raging seas and threatening squalls. We almost feel the rush of the wind and the impact of the waves. Five notes, please add sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really distracting. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, though. We have no time to look for details. They are swallowed up by the dazzling light and the dark shadows of the storm clouds. I'm currently reading from Gombrich's The Story of Art, and Gombrich goes to comment, I do not know whether a blizzard at sea really looks like this, but I do know <laughs> that this is a storm of this awe-inspiring and overwhelming kind that we imagine when reading a romantic poem or listening to romantic music. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and he goes on to say, In Turner, nature always reflects and expresses man's emotions. We feel small and overwhelmed in the face of the powers that we cannot control. Sublime! And we're compelled to admire the artists who have nature's forces at his command. Sublime! <coughs> Sublime! Sublime! 
so yeah, like Sarah keeps coughing in the background. It definitely echoes to the back to the idea to have sublime. And I'm pretty sure you could identify various key concepts of romanticism that we already covered in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, would you like to hear about Constable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Um, Constable definitely did not want to shock people by daring innovations. All he wanted to do was to be faithful to his own vision. He went out to the countryside to make sketches from nature and then elaborated them in his studio. Um, another famous painting by John Constable. It's the Haywain of 1821. And just really briefly, it shows the painting which made Constable famous in Paris when he sent it there in 1824. It represents a simple rural scene, a Haywain fording a river. We must lose ourselves in the picture, watch the patches of sunlight on the meadows in the background, and look at the drifting clouds. We must follow the course of the mill stream and linger by the cottage, which is painted with such restraint and simplicity to appreciate the artist's absolute sincerity, his refusal to be more impressive than nature, and his complete lack of pose or pretentiousness. Mm. And I think it is it is a definitely a romantic painting, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's less intense than say a Turner or a William Blake or even a Cuthbert David Friedrich. Yeah like at my German homeboy. Yeah, like you could you should could you sort of say that uh Turner is like a momentous romantic romanticism whereas Constable is more day to day and like mm. down to earth? I think the way I would describe it would be that Turner was, yeah, he was like really, he was really intense. He was really into it. He wanted to dazzle people. He wanted people to feel the emotion of the sublime. Whilst Constable was someone who was a lot calmer, he did employ the concepts of romanticism. He still, even though it's not, I do feel there is like emotional intensity in the painting. But it's a different kind of emotional intensity. Do you know what I mean? Almost like the Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell. Ooh. Uh, Did you say Caspar David Friedrich? Yes, he's another big, big name. Um, He was born in 1774 and died in 1840. Um, His landscape pictures reflect the mood of the romantic lyrical poetry of his time, which is more familiar to us through Schubert's songs. And I feel his massive um, vistas and images of landscapes and mountains and ruins and sunsets and sunrises and moonrises and whatever, it, they come so close to the ideas of poetry. Mm. But yeah, so he's a foreign one. Another foreign painter that I would like to mention is Goya, because Goya's pretty freaking awesome. Uh, Francisco Goya was... Um, born in 1746 and died in 1828. He was very well-versed in the best tradition of Spanish painting, but did not renounce uh, his mastery in favour of classical grandeur. Um, So even though his paintings would look like a little bit of um, like neoclassical, but not really, or romantic, the figures in his paintings belong to a different world. He also liked to do a lot of etchings, aquatint. There is a etching called The Giant, which he executed in 1818. Oh, that, uh, that is like, that's my favourite guy etching. Yeah. 
Um, the most striking fact about Goya's prints is that they are not illustrations of any known subject, either biblical, historical or genre. Most of them are fantastic visions of witches on uncanny apparitions. Some are meant as accusations against the powers of stupidity and re reaction, of cruelty and oppression which Goya had witnessed in Spain. Others seem just to give shape to the artist's nightmares. So that's like romanticism 100. Like, I think if you wanted to rank the artist, <laughs> Constable would be like the calmest. He's like the most chill guy. And then I think Casper David Friedrich, like above him, and then Turner because mm. he's quite like intense. I feel like he's got a bit of like crazy eyes <laughs> going on. And then you have Goya, who's just a nut job. Yeah, and of course, Goya is in the book of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Arlen. Mm -hmm. Paints Jonathan with his um, The Seventeen Dead Neapolitans. Which is a painting I would love to see. Maybe I'll have to make it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other paintings we've got to mention before we can delve into the Minai Sirais? Um, yes, I think we should have some honorary mentions of some what I think would be key artworks that y'all should check out. The most obvious one is Friedrich's Wonder Above the Fog, executed in 1818, um, which is his own portrait within his landscape as a lay figure seen from behind, a device intended to invite the viewer to look at the world through the lens of the artist's own crystal perception. Yeah, and just that like figure of the silhouetted man from behind is just it's it's the thing I most associate with romantic painting. Yeah, if someone said romanticism to you, if they said, like, what is romanticism, I feel like the number one thing they would say is that painting. Yeah. Like, like it's the it's cover of this romanticism book I got out from the library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in, the, in painting, he's adapted the generic conventions of landscape painting to the demands of creative self-expression. Unwilling to have the artist serve as a mere photographer, as it were of nature, Friedrich always took as his task the private and personal encounter of an individual with nature. So he was captivated by the idea of encountering nature in solitude, in deepest ravines, on the edge of the sea, or as here on the pinnacle of a mountain, which was about as far away from urban civilization as a European man can get. Mm. And it really stresses the idea of self-expression, hmm. uh, which he associated with physical and spiritual isolation. The Romantics believed that any artist who wanted to explore his own emotions had necessarily to stand outside the throng of money-making, political gimmickry, and urban noise in order to assert and maintain their position. Hmm. Still a dilemma that happens today. Like, do mm. I just do I make art that people want to buy, or do I make art that's actually good? Mm. Nah, shall we start talking about the mini series? Now, little children, and by little children I mean listeners, it is time to apply everything we have learned to the mini series. Yes, a romanticism is not dead; it is still alive and kicking on the BBC. In the yeah. form of this little television show you might have heard of or watched, possibly called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Of course, you've watched it while you listen to this. So, um, 
the first thing that struck me and when I was mm-hmm. watching that made me go romanticism when I was watching was the King's Roads. Should we start there? Yes. Or do you have another plan? Yes. No, we can start at the King's Roads because and I feel that is one of the more iconic. Yeah, one of the yeah, it's iconic. One of the more obvious things. One of the easiest scenes that you can attribute to romanticism, I think. Cause so obviously, just... um, I remember listening to your episode zero uh, podcast, uh, episode of the podcast, and Sam mentioned the King's Roads, and Sarah said it's like Friedrich's The Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. And I 100% vehemently agree with the statement. Just the way the painting, it's like you look at it and you see the back of the artist looking over this massive, vast landscape. Of this fog sort of unknowable, and... mysterious landscape as yes. well. Yes. Um, and and it's it, it the just same like, with Jonathan as well, yeah. Like the moment he like comes out of the mirror and then turns the corner and it's just his yes. silhouette and the king's rose and you're like... <gasps> I have <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and you've okay. talked a lot about um uh romantic painters evoking like fantastical landscapes of places mm-hmm. that don't exist and well that well, of course the king's road exists it's just behind the mirrors <laughs> yeah um, of course still <laughs> still like I still think that Jonathan Strange is going to appear out of my mirror in my bedroom one day. Like, that's totally going to happen, right? So badly. (laughs) Please, just... I pray every night. At God, please. Sorry. I pray every single day for Jonathan Strange. (laughs) Um, Oh, let's not even. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, there's some quotes I'd like to read out to do with... um, painting that I feel totally 100% just I get really excited because it makes me think of Jonathan and him on the King's Road and again these are from the Guardian I can't remember exactly what articles I've pulled them from but I'm pretty sure I bookmarked them so they can go in the description if you want to read them so the first one is um, the emptiness and mysticism on Friedrich's vistas populated only by the ghost of German heroes have made him the visual equivalent to Wagner, a grimly scarred anti-hero in the Hall of Cultural Giants. Oh my god. Yes. And there was another one, <laughs> another one, where they've written, Friedrich has become the supreme icon of German romantic visionary, the artist as mountain climber, throwing away his oxygen to get a better taste of the sublime, in love with the void, an image of German history. So in its original context, we talked about Friedrich and German history. It's not quite applicable, but I think like the literal imagery of where it says the artist is a mountain climber, throwing away his oxygen to get a better taste of the sublime, in love with the void. Like I literally think of Jonathan Strange when I read that. Like I can't, like I just, oh, just I get really excited. <laughs> oh yeah, like you can't. <laughs> You guys, you guys know what we're, you probably feel, yeah, you yeah, know what like, we're like. you're probably just sat there going, yes, 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 yes. Stop very bell. Thought I was bad with swearing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, um, I came across a book called The Landscape of History, How Historians Map the Past 
by John Lewis Goddess. Um, and he's written in, I think it's chapter one. You can get the book on Google Books anyway, so you can check that out. A young man stands hatless in a black coat on a high rocky point. His back is turned towards us and he is bracing himself with a walking stick against the wind that blows his hair in tangles. Before him lies a fog-shrouded landscape in which the fantastic shape of more distant promontories are only partly visible. The far horizon reveals mountains off to the left, plains to the right, and perhaps very far away. One can't be sure. An ocean. But maybe it's just more fog, merging imperceptibly into clouds. The painting, which dates from 1818, is a familiar one. The impression it leaves is contradictory, suggesting a once mastery over a landscape and the insignificance of an individual within it. We see no face, so it's impossible to know whether the prospect confronting the young man is exhilarating or terrifying, or both. That's so just think, a description of the King's Roads. I know, I know, isn't it amazing? This is why I got really excited when I was actually writing for this episode, because I had I had so much fun pulling quotes about the art movement and putting it into the context of the miniseries and the visuals within it. I just thought it was so great. Um, what, what have you, you said Sandhorses on Waterloo? Yes, um, I feel like Jonathan, when he does magic, it's so... Romantic? Like, harness, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do get hard eyes when I see him do it. He just harnesses nature in a way, the romanticists harness nature in their painting, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the Sandhorses as well, such a great, like, scene so powerful yeah and so sublime well i don't know if you would describe it that way i would definitely describe it as sublime because you look at that and it's that because it's the first time we see magic that i think it's the first time we see him do big magic yeah like it's it is very sublime because you kind of look at it and you go well if he can do that without really thinking about it what else can he do? Like that, it's pretty terrifying when you kind of consider the implications. It, it's sublime. Yes, um, I think was it the same episode where in the beginning was it before the credits? It was one of the opening scenes where there's the boats, the rain the ships, ships That's made out the of sh- second rain. episode. Um, yeah, that also I think evokes imagery of the sublime. Yeah, and they're so just... big and powerful, and you're just like, what? And the power of nature. Hold on, Coral, let me take a Snapchat and send it to my friend. What the hell is this? <laughs> and um, also, again, Battle of Waterloo, where he uses the mud and it's raining and it's so nature's everywhere. Yeah, and it's just the middle of chaos and war and conflict. And yeah. All that stuff that man is doing, being kind of being able to be overwhelmed by nature and magic. And obviously, like, magic stemming from nature, as in yeah. speaks to stones, speaks to... Yeah. Speak, yeah, and... Yeah. yeah. Like, um, what I also read about Caspar David Friedrich is that he, in his artworks, he satirized the Napoleonic Empire. Mm. And so he's using romanticism, and he's using nature, and he's using the sublime, and he's using this imagery of nature being this great, uncontrollable, chaos-wrecking, uh, cataclysmic uh, power to mock Napoleon and his empire and his army. And I think you could put that 
wanted to contact stuff, Jonathan, I oh. I'll look what I do. Um, where he harnesses nature and the powerful cataclysmic nature of yeah, nature. Can... <laughs> yeah, no, you you might you won't know this because I haven't read the book. Um, but there's a in the book there's a scene in which. Napoleon is like, I want some magicians because I need to use magic like the British are doing against me. And then these mm-hmm. <laughs> these guys basically con him into like paying them to do like magic, which is just like a, like like there's a sort of like a wardrobe that they're like, okay, Nap- Napoleon, like if you go into this wardrobe, like you'll get the secrets, and they do like <laughs> these crazy tricks, and he sort of falls for it for a while, and it's just oh, he's being very much mocked by magic. Um, yeah, yeah, and his sort of failure to uh, use it, like the British do or the English do. Mm. But um, yeah, I think another scene in the miniseries that I think is super like harnesses this imagery of nature in the context of romanticism is when Jonathan goes looking for Arabella in the snow, mm. and it's just like the overwhelming sense of. It's it's just the snow. It's, it's like so intense, and like so Turner, powerful. like Turner, yes. like storm steamer. Yes, exactly. There we go. <laughs> there we go. You can use your brain muscles as well sometimes. <laughs> Are you talking <laughs> about me? <laughs> um, yeah, and like the drive to fight against odds, fight against nature, but you mm-hmm. can't because it's this sublime power. <laughs> How many times have we said sublime in this episode? Please keep a tally. Um, also, Lost Hope I feel is very romantic with its ruins and oh, the trees. It, it looks yes. like a Caspar David Friedrich painting. Literally, like, literally. Yeah. Put in the description a painting that looks like Lost Hope. I swear to God, you will be able to find like millions. Oh, oh yeah, I I already have. I know exactly the painting I'm thinking of. Is that the one with the um the trees on either side and the yep. middle of the arch? Yep. Yep. You can't see, but I'm doing finger guns on the webcam. <laughs> Do you want to talk about um, Jonathan was, in Venice? Yes, I was going to mention the the Black Tower. Yeah, yeah, like the Black Tower. To- I, I don't know. I don't exactly know why, but I just feel it's a really That's totally sublime romantic image. Yeah, okay. That's so sublime. Um, yeah, and actually, in in Burke's um, theory of the sublime, here he has like three like many chapters on mm-hmm. just describing darkness and blackness and how like yes. unsettling God. it is and it's just dark and solitude and loneliness all of mm-hmm. which encompasses this this figure of the artist as like suffering for her cause yeah um, and um he- yeah i totally know what you mean with uh jonathan and venice he kind of descended into this strange madness, which you could say is a depiction of the Byronic hero, which I yeah. remember you mentioned a couple of weeks back. Yeah, know? yeah. And actually, um, Susanna Clark uh, has said about where the idea of Jonathan Strange, Mr. Arnold, came from, was she had this strong image of like a man in Venice. And she saw, she saw this man, This he, he turned out to be Jonathan Strange. And all she knew about him was that he was... Dan- more dangerous than he appeared and some kind of Byronic hero and sort of went from there um, yes. and actually in, in the it's quite funny in the book uh, Jonathan mentions at the very end that 
I'm paraphrasing here, but he's basically like, oh, well, I yes, I was a bit like Byron. It came from hanging out with him too much. Because <laughs> he was he was such a, like, a kind of drama queen in, in well, in the book and the series. Um, yeah. But sort of the, the Byronic hero is... Well, basically, where that comes from is, like, Lord Byron fan fiction. Um, <laughs> in like the this is getting a bit into literature, which I'm not too savvy about at the moment. Could do some yeah. research. Um, but like <laughs> where where um like Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, John Paul Dory, someone else who I can't remember. Like they were like the romantic squad. Um, yeah. And then like Frankenstein, and the vamp- the vampire was written by John Paul Dory, and it's basically Lord Byron fan fiction. Nice. About this mysterious, elegant man who has a dark secret and a driven cause and is not altogether sane and all that describes the Byronic <laughs> hero and Lord Byron himself and applies to Jonathan Strange in Venice when he's Oh, nice. Yeah. I think earlier not on this recording, but we we're talking about the artist as being portrayed as like A suffering yeah. but B being elevated on t- into this ivory tower of yeah. being a- an amazingly talented person and I just when you mentioned very ivory hypocritical tar, like, yeah yeah oh yeah ivory tower black tower yeah I also think that the how Jonathan goes traveling through Europe um after, after his wife t- but no also like the figure of the wanderer as a really romantic figure mm. Uh, mm. and a traveler yeah. and Seeking the like, exotic. Yeah, like that quote I read out. If I can just, yeah, where he says he throws away his oxygen to get a better taste of the sublime in love with the void. Yeah. That is legit Jonathan in Venice, I feel. That is yeah. so Jonathan in Venice. And, and sort of even at the end where they both go leave the world and go travelling through fairy. Um, Wait, pause. Was that, is that after the miniseries? No, no, or? that's in the miniseries as well. Oh. Like they kind of just leave. And go off and because the house disappears. Oh yeah. At the end of the miniseries, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um. Because I haven't read the book, does the book go like further? No. No, it doesn't. Really? What the? F- like it? They, see that? You know that scene? I feel. Where... I feel like such a noob right now. Like I'm sorry. Oh no no! It's like it's got like you know the scene where Arabella is talking to him through like the fountain. Mm-hmm. She like skypes him via water. That's like nice. that's like the last page, pretty much, of the book. Oh, but I want more. Tough shit. She is. She did. More. She did say she was working on like a sequel or like another book based in the same universe. More, 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 more. more, more, more. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where did we get to? This well, is not my just... beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Sorry. How did I get here? <laughs> I think we should um, wrap up because we've been recording for like an hour and a bit, and. Oh, there's still something that I would like to mention. Just to wrap up the last couple of points that I would like to make, or I would like to bring to your attention. After looking at the imagery of nature in the BBC miniseries, we saw how Jonathan interacted with nature when he was doing magic. And that is such a contrast to how Norrell does his magic. Oh, yeah. Like, I would say that he doesn't use nature really at all yeah in his magic and jonathan really wants to go off and do his own thing and Norrell kind of 
It's just like, hold on, son. Not so fast. <laughs> you gotta keep with the status quo. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think definitely that strange embodies romanticism and oh. Norrell embodies enlightenment. Yeah. Like, just like, so is, much. There's so many parallels there. Um, romanticism came after enlightenment. I feel like strange coming after Norrell kind of like, you know, romanticism developed as a response to the enlightenment. Yeah. Like and it, strange and how he did magic was a response to Norrell's way of doing things. Yeah. Like romanticism wouldn't have happened without the enlightenment. Strange yes. wouldn't have happened without Norrell. Um, yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. The whole sense I get from all my art history lectures at art school here and from just like, there is, Susanna Clarke has said that Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell represent like the left and right halves of the brain, like the emotional, mm-hmm. the logical order, chaos. Um, and I feel like mm-hmm. this kind of that dichotomy, well, that binary applies in art history as well, where you have like the the very like, like the classical and the yeah. gothic, or mm-hmm. like neoclassical and romantic, uh, even like like sort of realism and symbolism, like. Well, Art Nouveau, yeah, Deco, like, Modernist, Postmodernist. I think Jonathan like Strange, what you Mr. Norrell. Could describe it too is nineteenth um, century academic painting versus impressionism. Yeah, basically, I think that's the easiest way of describing it. Yeah, impressionism developed out of, or maybe you could say, uh, academic painting and realism, like yeah. the likes of Manet and. Uh, Gustave Courbet. Yeah. So Edward Manet and Gustave Courbet. Um, they really went against the grain, against academic painting. So it's kind of sort of like that, I guess. Is that what you were trying to? I'm really sorry, but you cut out and I'm not quite sure what you said. But I'm just going to go with yes, that is exactly what I meant to say. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) It'll be a surprise. I'll listen back to it later. Um, so yeah, I think we can pretty much ends there and like we've got some other podcast tidbits but me and me and sam can come back and fill them in like agony uncles and songs and stuff yeah so thank you very much for hearing what we have to say oh thank you for having me and also thank you for letting me have this opportunity to finally put something down of interest on my cv (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) all right then yeah Bye. 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 Sweet. Cool. No, that was pretty good. That was that was. I knew very little about romanticism before, but now I do. Like I've seen paintings at museums and, and things, obviously, but never really knew more about the background of it. So happy to be of service. Especially like the bit how you how you compared like strange to the romanticism and normal to enlightenment, which we'll have to go into a bit further for another podcast sometime. Like I think it'll be very unsettled just the relationship between strange light and normal light magic and that kind of discourse all through history, as I kind of mentioned. But yeah, I mean, like, and obviously that was sort of something that was quite apparent to me as I was reading the book. But yeah, or watching the show as well. I, I didn't really realise, like, just because I d- didn't know very much about it, that didn't really, I don't know, register. But now, with the way you talked about it and compared it, that, yeah. And especially the bit about the, the, the King's Road. 
That I could really see that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That was good. Yay! Yay! Now, shall we move on to the agony uncles? Yes. We've all been on the edge of our seats waiting for this. Well, I'm sure some of us have. Yeah. <laughs> and listeners, if you want to have your questions or issues answered by our agony uncles, please write in, which you can send in via our Tumblr. So jsampodcast.tumblr.com or email at jsampodcast.com podcast at gmail.com I completely forgot we had an email (laughs) we're so professional totally forgot about that so here we go dear Mr. Drawlight I've learned recently that I will be moving away from my current position in a lab towards a more administrative role Needless to say, for the past year I've been quite afraid to wear nice clothes as the chemicals I surround myself with positively ruin them I'm at quite a loss how to reinvent my wardrobe into a more respectable sort. Thank you for any assistance you may provide. Cheers, Potions Master. Mr. Drawlight writes, Oh, Potions Master, why would anyone want a job that would ruin one's clothes? That sounds dreadful. I commend you on your promotion and hope that you enjoy many comforts of it and do not have to work too strenuously at your new post. I believe it would be best if you, for a while, imitated the fashions of people in similar positions. Once you know the general rules of address for people of your new station, embellishments and personal style will be more in order. In addition, discard all of your old clothes today. Keep only what you need to avoid nakedness as you obtain your new wardrobe. Okay, yeah. starting over, generally good advice, yeah. yes. <laughs> Seems legit. Next one. Dear Mr. Drawlight and Mr. Lascelles, I'm desperately in love with a certain gentleman, but alas, he seems to have eyes only for rich married women. I've concocted a plan to lend myself a husband of substantial means. Do you think that would be sufficient to attract his attention? A besotted damsel. Mr. Lascelles right. Miss, I am shocked at your behaviour, and what's more, those rumours about me and certain married women have never been substantiated. But here you are, writing the salacious, though vaguely disguised, advances towards a man you do not know. These letters will be published for all to see. Have you no shame? I assure you that you will find no husband acting thusly. Control yourself. Consider what your mother and father would say should they read this. It sounds as though you desperately need someone to teach you better manners. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Mr. Drawlight writes, Lovely damsel, I assure you that this will work. Marry with all haste, as your betrothed is rich and you should do this anyway. But be careful conducting your affair if that is your choice. Guard your heart and reputation as best as you can should you proceed. Your beloved has nothing to lose and you everything. If you need help finding places to meet with your lover after your wedding, write back. Such things are my specialty. Thanks, Drawlight. That's that's, uh, generally optimistic, I would say. (laughs) Yes, but cautious, which is good, I suppose. All caution, yeah, (laughs) as as he says. (laughs) Uh, Right, so news. We actually have some news and stuff to announce. Uh, the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell Society of Magicians, um, which 
is on Tumblr at the jsamnsocietymagicians.tumblr.com, which we'll have a link to on the podcast blog. They have set up a new message board for the fandom, which is at jsamnsociety.vbulletin.net. Again, there will be a link on our podcast blog. Um, yeah, uh, then they're also organising a meetup, which is going to be on the 23rd of April, although I don't know where and I don't think they know either, but you can head over and... It's- in London. Somewhere. Yeah. So there's, again, there's a post on Tumblr which will reblog to our own blog as well, where they're organising it. Because, you know, the details depend on how many people are interested, of course. So if you want to meet up with other fans to talk about this lovely book and series. In the UK, you know, if you're privileged enough to be a UK, UK resident. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I won't be there. Well, yeah. Unfortunately. I may be there. I, I You may be there. I Ooh. yeah. I may take that long journey down. If you do, you should do a podcasty thing. Yeah, if if I do end up coming down, I'll bring my mic and get everyone to have a discussion, maybe. Something that could be exciting, could be exciting. Maybe see you there. So with that we've we've reached the end of this episode. Next week we're going to be talking Next about week. costumes. Next week? Oh no, I did it again. No, it's it so again. difficult. <laughs> Next episode, <laughs> we're going to be talking about costumes. Yes, so... I've been waiting so long for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> because we're both nerds and make clothes and costumes in our spare time. Yep, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know. If there's anything you'd like to contribute, let us know. What did you like especially about the costumes of the show? Yeah, if, yeah, if you want to get into... Send us a message. Sorry? No, 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 that was good. Um, I was going to say, if you want to get into the advanced semantics of cravat tying or anything like that, what does that even mean? <laughs> Who knows? Come and discuss it. <laughs> yeah, it should probably be another episode where we'll talk about very visual things on a podcast without visuals. <laughs> so, look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and with that, we say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Chaotic as usual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>